Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. One of the most difficult problems in business to manage is conflict. I mentor a lot of people working in toxic places and will always tell them that if there is a toxic work environment, it is almost impossible to shift without a concerted effort. Politics is an area famous for conflict. So I've invited Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Sally Capp, to join us. Sally was also the first woman to hold the post of Agent General for Victoria in the UK, Europe and Israel. And before that, she had an exceptional career in the law. In this episode, we discuss ways to manage conflict where there are dissenting opinions, complex personalities, hidden agendas, or where there's been a systematic problem with culture in the organisation. Sally Cap, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. I have a particularly tough topic to discuss with you today because I thought, who better to talk about something tricky than someone who's led multiple organisations and NFPs. But I want to start by asking you what it means to be the Mayor of Melbourne. Well, that is a big question to start. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be part of this community for this discussion today. What it means to be the Mayor of Melbourne, firstly, it's an absolute honour and privilege beyond my expectations to be able to represent the people of Melbourne and to be a champion for our community and to be a representative of the capital city of Victoria. All those sorts of things are an absolute honour. What I have come to understand, which I probably didn't appreciate coming in, is that local government is very much the closest interface between community and levels of government. And the bonus of that for me is that I get those wonderfully rich interactions every day. Sometimes they are based in conflict, sometimes they result in conflict, but with all of the passion of why people love Melbourne, why they care about it and why they want it to keep improving. And for me, that's just a wonderful thing. How's Melbourne feeling at the moment? I was there for the tennis and I was staying in the city and it was just electric. It was so exciting to be there. How would you describe it? right now? Well, 2023 is our year in Melbourne. We have had a bruising few years, but I really feel like over the summer, we were able to shake off the shackles that have been the pandemic for us here and the excitement and energy of looking forward and feeling hopeful and being able to make plans, but be able to be spontaneous as well. All of those elements are back. We're certainly seeing it in the foot traffic. Weekends and night times now are consistently above pre-pandemic levels and we're really getting our groove back and there's that vibe that Melburnians love about coming together for events big and small. We still this year are aiming for something that sounds boring, predictability, but it isn't for our small traders, 
between Monday and Friday just to have a sense of predictability about the rhythm of the city so that they can order properly and roster properly and plan and invest in the future. So for us, we're watching those trends very closely. Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays have been very busy weekdays, working days for us, but Fridays are really starting to peak now and um, we've still got a lot of work to do on Mondays in terms of attracting people in, but getting some predictability into that rhythm and really setting that new pace is a focus for us this year. But we are energised about us getting our groove back. Yeah, I have to say that's definitely what it looked like and one of my favourite coffee shops, seeing a Duke Roasters in Flinders Lane, just seeing a line-up at 7am. So, it was a really good feeling to be in Melbourne and to see the city coming back to life. As a result of what Melbourne's been through, have you seen people's priorities change in terms of what they want from the city and from life in Melbourne? Definitely. And it's sometimes still controversial to say that there are silver linings from the pandemic period, but I really do believe that some of these elements are silver linings. The change in attitude is, I think, marked. We see people more appreciative of things they took for granted previously about the city, the fact that we have so many fantastic galleries and and museums, so many wonderful venues for live performance and musicals and theatre, amazing parks and gardens. I've never seen so many people on the Yarra, on on boats in, in my life. That sense that when we couldn't do it, we've started to appreciate more the things that we took for granted prior, is definitely real. And the other thing we've really noticed is that because flexible working was accelerated during the pandemic and really it is here to stay, something that we are embracing, when we see people come to the city, they're coming with purpose. It's not that it was nine to five, Monday to Friday, that's sort of so yesterday. And and I see now that sort of treadmill that we were all on about when and when you come into the city and and how you interact. When people come now, they've planned to come at those times for a meeting or for an activity with a supplier or to meet a a new employee. They've come for a collaboration or an innovation workshop, or they've come for retail therapy to see an exhibition or to go to a show or visit a laneway bar. There's a real sense of purpose in the way people are coming into and then moving around the city. And, And I think that's a really positive thing. At what point did you feel confident enough to run for the role and, I guess, you know, today um, represent the City of Melbourne? Well, it's a really good question because when I came in in 2018, of course, the role was much broader and deeper than I had imagined. And I came in during a crisis and really that triggered a passion in me for wanting to be part of the change at the City of Melbourne as an organisation and and the City of Melbourne as a place and community. And that was very much a focus for me. And when, of course, I became Lord Mayor and I realised just how many initiatives and programs we run and we deliver, how many strategic debates and discussions we're involved in, like affordable housing and climate change, and yet we're still collecting the rubbish every day and making sure we fix holes in pavements and and roads, that variety and the stunning breadth of what we get involved in has really, really surprised me. And then the role I can play as a leader in those different debates and projects is something that's constantly evolving. But what is, uh, I, I guess, one of the big revelations is that leadership is necessary all the time. 
So whether you feel you're prepared for it or not, you need to really back yourself and and the skills and talents and experiences you've got at that point and step in regardless. And this experience has certainly shown me that. As you know, I want to talk to you about conflict, but confidence is kind of critical as well in managing conflict. Do you regard yourself as confident or is that something you you work on? I often say to people that many years ago when I was a young worker, we went through a course where we did the Myers-Briggs personality assessment. And when I got my results, I was in the introvert side. And I understand that because I'm, I'm very comfortable on my own and with my own company. And I, I like a lot of activities that are like reading, uh, where you don't need other people. But when you're in roles like this, it is hard for people to understand that you might be an introvert because you're having to step up all the time and you're having to be in those representation roles and you're speaking to media, etc. And I think, you know, extrovert, introvert, I think the common part, regardless of where you fit on that personality spectrum, is about confidence and passion and belief and resolve and wanting to be part of those discussions. And that very much is something that drives me. And I think the other side of confidence that I've certainly learned over time is I've made so many mistakes. I've taken so many risks that didn't pay off. I've humiliated and embarrassed myself in many different situations. And I've still lived to tell the tale. And I think that does help build your resilience and then confidence to to be prepared to speak up or or stand up or even stand aside or follow when necessary and have the confidence to really be vulnerable. And when you get to that point, you know, you can almost tackle anything, I think. So if I'm hearing you correctly, your passion and enthusiasm and desire to be in the middle of everything was more powerful than your desire to stand at the back of the room or read a book and stay away from the action. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And uh, whilst I still have those moments where I'm very happy to stand at the back of the room, I know that my curiosity and my desire to make a difference and to be part of change and, of course, the elements of the role at different times require me to stand up or allow me to be in the centre of these conversations and I'm not going to miss any opportunity to do that. How hard do you work? I've got a sense that you work super hard, like pretty long hours. It is one of the key things that I grew up with in our, our family culture is about working hard. And um, often I say, particularly in our family conversations, that we're really a lot of worker ants. And that's how I see myself day to day as well, is very much rolling the sleeves up and, and getting involved, being willing to do the hard yards. But of course, as we're building confidence up around the city, it is part of my role to be the number one cheerleader and to be active and to be part of all of that positive momentum and optimism. And that's something I really enjoy and I take as a serious responsibility. You've achieved a lot of firsts. Can you talk about any specific challenges you may have had in being the first woman to be directly elected mayor or the first female board member at Collingwood? Yeah, there are some wonderful roles I've had. And look, I would think the first thing about being the first is that be prepared for awkward situations because you're in environments that where it hasn't happened before. So I think being really alive to that, not judgmental of that, 
and being open to working through those awkward situations is important. And that to me is is a real part of how I go into those situations is to take the time to listen and learn, uh, to be alive to some of the nervousness or situations that haven't been experienced before. Therefore, people don't know what to do or what to say often. And being able to move through that relatively quickly, I think that's an important part of those types of experiences. And then the other thing is, I feel again, an an obligation if I'm a first to make it the most positive experience possible so that it's much easier for others to come in after me. And and I really, I take that as a, I guess it's part of my legacy, but really it's part of the opening of the gates and the smashing of the ceilings and the helping people up ladders, all those sorts of things that is absolutely critical for those that are amongst the first few to create those pathways for the future. So you're sitting around the table at the Collingwood Football Club and you want to make it the most positive experience for those other board members. Tell me what you do. I'm assuming that doesn't mean cupcakes or taking the notes. (laughs) How do you do that? It's funny you say that Uh because I remember the first board meeting at Collingwood Football Club. We were still at Victoria Park and you walk across that sticky carpet of the social club and, and into the boardroom. And as a member of the club, I'd been in the social club many, many times, but never into the boardroom. And there's a lot of history there and a lot of wonderful sense of achievement and accomplishment. And of course, a massive sense of being a key part of a community. And uh, in that first board meeting, I could tell virtually immediately that all uh, my colleagues, my board colleagues, all male, were on their best behaviour. There were no eruptions of disagreement or there was no bad language. Everybody was very respectful, staying in their lane. And I think we got through the agenda in record time. And I knew that the new paradigm here was me. And that as part of that, not only when they're on their best behaviour, but we weren't necessarily fully discussing all the issues, the jocularity that you would expect amongst colleagues, wasn't necessarily there. And really, they were trying to be as respectful to me, but unsure, you know, what did it mean for the culture of this team going forward and that dynamic that you set when you're part of a team? So towards, uh, I I listened very intently. As a first timer, there wasn't a lot I could add into the conversations that I thought was necessarily of value. And I wanted to understand how the team liked to work. But I did make a joke towards the end and general business about wanting to suggest a change. And everybody listened with bated breath. And Eddie, as president, was very respectful of of his role of chairing the meeting and listening. And I said quite seriously that I thought it was worthwhile considering changing the design of the uniforms. And there was a moment of silence. And I think they then realised I was making a joke As I was, I had no intention of changing those wonderful black and white uh, stripes. And uh, with that, there was a little bit of the breaking of the ice and and we could move forward. So, you know, I think you do have to read the room and you have to try and work out pretty quickly what's the best way that you can add value. And in those circumstances, it wasn't just that I'd run businesses before, I've been a lawyer, that I understood finance. It was that I also needed to understand my best way to become a team player in that environment. And sometimes that takes a little bit of a bit of time. But in in that environment, as soon as we'd broken the ice, um, we've been all great mates ever since. 
despite very robust conversations on the way through. That is a great story. I do wonder though, uh, and I watch, you know, I watch Sam Moskin's career, for example. I do wonder how you calibrate in the moment intervening in something that's clearly either a little bit offensive or inaccurate or unfair from a gender's perspective versus letting it go through the keeper because it's on the margins. And I say that acknowledging that probably in your early days at Collingwood, that would have been a lot harder and it would have got a lot easier. But how do you navigate that? Mm, Do I call this one out as well today? Do I constantly be that person? How have you done that? Well, it's tough and you've got to make a judgment in each circumstance and we don't always get it right. And I've got examples of that as well. But I I have come to understand that firstly, I'm a person that assumes good intentions and I do that until proven otherwise. So then from that perspective, I'm coming at it from, you know, this is about education and information and it's about us being better together as a result of my involvement, you know, whether it was on that board or even in a conversation in a community, judging as you do with any conflict situation or avoiding a conflict situation, do you say this now or do you wait until later? I grew up with my parents saying that you publicly compliment and privately criticise as a sort of a good general rule on ways to interact but to be able to acknowledge things that need to change or that are wrong or that are disrespectful or hurtful. And it's been a pretty good rule for me, but sometimes you do need to say it in a more public environment to set the tone and to create change. So I'm up for all of those things that I, I do think you need to assess assess it at the time. And I, I have a few of my own techniques if I feel that people are trying to undermine or, or I guess gaslight me in some way. And often that is to turn the to turn the conversation back to the person, that it's more of a reflection of them than it is of me. And to ask questions is always a great technique as well, just to ask questions back rather than make a statement, actually ask a question and get that person to realise and understand the implications of what they're saying or doing. So you would have encountered many circumstances where there's a passionate disagreement on a fundamental issue. And, you know, the the example that I was thinking about, and, you know, excuse me for the cliche, but the example that I'm thinking about is bike paths in the city. Great arguments both ways. How do you navigate those complex stakeholder contests? Well, for me, I don't want to say I, I follow this approach every time, but it's a pretty common way that even if I'm preparing pre a meeting or discussion, that I consider the way forward when I I think there's going to be conflict or could be. Firstly, normally you're going into a situation where the bits where you're going to disagree are the, the, the minority of the issues you're going to discuss. I mean, we can use bike parts as an example, but firstly, just acknowledging that the parts that you agree on are usually far more than the parts you disagree on. So I like to focus on those things you agree on first. And that's a really good way of establishing, do we have a common goal here? And once you've established a common goal, which in this case is, do we agree that we want to make space available for people to ride bikes, which just everybody says yes, of course, because they are 
an integral part of our transport network these days. Many people ride bikes for pleasure and also for commuting. So do we need to find space? Then then already you've created a common goal. And it's usually the conflict comes with how are we going to do that? Because of course, there are a myriad of ways of achieving creating space for bike users. And it's about working through all of those options. So the next thing that I lean to or or go to is evidence and data. And I find maybe it's the lawyer training in me that it takes a lot of the emotion out and it gets people really focused on the issue through evidence and data. You know, this is the reality. It's not a perception. It's not an emotion about things. This is the evidence and data. Now, sometimes emotions can be very distractive and harmful to outcomes, but sometimes they're also necessary. And I've come to understand in politics, that's really the biggest part because everybody's got evidence and data, but it's managing people through their emotions and how they feel about this. But importantly, understanding that every single person has a vested interest of some sort. They've got their own agenda And mostly people start from that. How is it going to impact me? And so that becomes a key part of what I ask and delve into. How is it going to impact me, but importantly, all of the different stakeholders that are involved here? And in doing that, and then at least being alive to those issues, even if you can't fix them, people feel that they've been heard, seen, considered, And we've got a way of moving forward because let's face it, on most issues, we're dealing with a balance or a compromise or a negotiated outcome. I mean, I am a Collingwood supporter, but it's really black or white when you're talking about big strategic issues and changes in community. And so finding those areas where you agree so that it balances out the disagree, understanding what the common goal is, and then really putting in a big effort to understanding what are those vested interests for all the stakeholders involved and negotiating from there. They've been key approaches for me and that's certainly what we've done with the bicycle lanes. At the end of the day, on a transport network that is, it's got limited space, we can't create more space, then this is a fine balancing act and really using the evidence and data to address each of those stakeholder interests and um, work towards and remind ourselves we're working towards a common goal here. I think those have been important elements for me. What about when you do have the emotion in the room and it's it's just emotion? It, the evidence and data is not going to calm the emotional member of your team or stakeholder down. They've come in, they're ranting. Do in those circumstances. Well, interestingly, I found through my career that as soon as emotion comes into it, most people walk away because it's hard. It's really hard and it's confronting and it can be threatening and people get defensive and the best thing, you know, they think they can do is just to walk away. Whereas I'm more somebody that that wants to really walk into that. I call it fierce conversations and I really think they're so valuable and worthwhile because often addressing an issue at the time, even if it's emotion fueled, is better than people walking away and letting it ferment. Sometimes, of course, you need to call a break so you can go away and cool off. That's fine too. But the first thing I would say is don't just automatically walk away when you feel that there's a lot of emotion. It's really important in those times to to stay in that moment and, and have those fierce conversations. The next thing is, as a leader, is it is my role to 
listen and to let people rant and to really explore not just how they're feeling, but why are they feeling that way to unpack that situation and to then be open and honest and respectful and constructive in providing responses to that. And, you know, over the five years almost that I've been Lord Mayor, I've walked into so many situations where I can feel the negativity and the emotion before I've even walked into the room. I'm, I'm expecting that based on the topic or or the stakeholders involved. And you've really got to psych yourself up knowing this is the moment where we can possibly resolve this if you're willing to go in and you don't have to go in with a stake in the ground and say, I'm not moving from this or you must listen to me, I'm not listening to you. I think it's a really important responsibility and skill set as a leader to be able to go in and to listen and to diffuse the emotion and then bring everybody back around those facts and data and the common goals and and move forward from there. And in most circumstances, you can find that way forward. It might be different to what you thought when you walked in the room. I've, I've been into community forums before where people are very angry about something that might have happened in a park, for example, something that we've done. We've had quite a few of those public open spaces highly sought after and, and used. And um, people are angry with, you know, for example, we've put a new basketball court into a local park and it's taken up some of the green open space. And, and residents, some residents are delighted and others are absolutely disgusted. And being able to walk into a difficult conversation like that, let them have the chance to be heard and then go back to this is why, this is therefore the decision we made and you might not like it, but we're hoping that you understand it and that you can see the benefits that it's bringing and let's continue to talk about how we can enhance your green open space in other parts of the park. As I said, these are always balance and compromises and I guess ultimately you've got to know that you can't please all the people all the time. So having a sense of resolve about why you've done things and why you're implementing and delivery on them is important too because you've got to be able to do that even in the face of ongoing criticism. Do you still care what people think of you or have you got through that phase and you've gone, okay, I'm just going to have these arguments and do the right thing and then I retire as Lord Mayor and hopefully somebody else writes the story of my success? I don't know anybody where it doesn't hurt. (laughs) I think it's very human to care about what people think. I do. You could even ask people in my team today. They know I I get hurt by things that get said. For me, actually, that's important because I think it's important to to experience that emotion as well. But of course, the trick is to be able to move through it quickly. And that involves a number of things. You know, firstly, are they right to say that about me? No, I need to keep checking in with myself on that. Good reality checks. At other times, I say that's completely absurd and that person doesn't know me and doesn't understand me and I'm able to draw on the support of people that I really respect. And at the end of the day, there is a smaller group of people that you rely on their opinion and their values and you trust them and they could be family members, friends and colleagues. And within that small circle, I will um, reach out to them if needed to give me a bit of a boost or to metaphorically um, give me a, a slap and then I move on. But I do care about what people think. I am 
very human in that way, but even in the face of disagreement or complete nastiness, which happens often, if I think something is right, I will see it through to the end. talked before about understanding what the agenda is in each of the stakeholder around the table. And once you have an idea what their agenda is, it kind of gets easier to move through it. But let's talk politics. The agendas are not often, no, I shouldn't be that critical, and not always <laughs> well, I've very carefully avoided all of this so far, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and well, and let's talk politics, right? I mean, it is a bit of a microcosm of what can happen in the rest of the world. But the agenda is, I just want to topple you as Lord Mayor and I don't really care what I think about bike paths, but if I know that I can win, make a lot of noise by opposing the Lord Mayor, I am just going to make that noise. And federal opposition leaders have made an art form of this. We're all a bit onto it now, so it's a bit harder to do it. But what do you do in those circumstances? And these are the reasons why you don't go into politics, to, to have to tackle with that kind of thing. It's, it's actually one of the worst parts of the job. You know, beyond frustrating, it can be very disillusioning to see people behave in that way when it's really, at the end of the day, it comes down to completely self-interest, even when they're in roles where they're supposed to be representing, you know, the good of the broader community. And ultimately, I think a lot of that comes back to reflect on them but it doesn't mean that there's not a lot of pain on the way through for you when when you really think that you're striving for something important and you get undermined by those sorts of efforts. What I really tend to do is, um, as I've said, I, I really like data and facts and and I think often they speak for themselves. And the other thing that's important is to check back in, you know, is is what I'm proposing actually what people think or want or believe? So checking back and making sure that the stakeholders that you're delivering a project for or you are advocating for, that they're there with you 100% because at the end of the day, they're the people that you're creating the change for. Sometimes I'm so, get so angry with myself as well. I, you know, could I have communicated this better? Could I have not been drawn into side discussion which distracted everybody away from the main issue, you know, all of those sorts of things. And I have to say that even as experienced as I am, I get caught up in that stuff occasionally too. And it's so frustrating because there's no good outcome from those interactions. And it really is so wasteful and um, often purposefully so. So I try to avoid them as often as I can. I really do try to shape the conversations back to the issues, the facts, the outcome we're trying to seek and make sure that we keep checking in with the community that we're doing it for so that we're on the right track despite all of the noise that's going on. But sometimes, you know, there are traps there that we fall into. At the end of the day in politics, though, I have to say it's usually a numbers game. And I have to do that as well. If there's something I really want to see happen, I've got to get the numbers of people on council or the numbers of people in whether it's state government or federal government to support something, or I've got to go out into the private sector or the not-for-profit sector, depending on the issue, and rally and, and galvanise support. And so I'm the same as everybody else, and, and often it comes down to the weight of numbers. And if I haven't done enough work to get those numbers, 
then I might not be successful and, and you've got to be willing to put the hard work in. And look, the last thing I'll say is persistence. You know, one of the the things that these types of people or situations are set up for is to confound you and stop you. And the best thing you can do is to keep turning up, keep asking the questions, keep pushing the issue or proposing the project, keep finding a little bit of momentum to add into it and just keep going and going and going because often if it's not about the numbers, it's about the last person standing. I used to always think in my journalism career that just getting up earlier than everybody else was a good tactic. You're just at the table before everybody else. I like that. I like also trying to be the best prepared, Mm. which often means you've got to get up early to do that extra preparation. I think elements of surprise. So come with some things that haven't been discussed before so you can put them on the table as an element of surprise. I like those when they're possible. I think for everybody, you've got to find the style and the way that suits you because if it's not authentic, it's much, much harder to create outcomes, to convince people to be persuasive or influential or to stand, you know, as as a leader if you don't have that authentic nature around you. So if it's that, you know, you're up earlier than everybody else or, you know, there are elements to your style, I think you've really got to own them and in that way that becomes a tactic in its own right. I'm conscious that a lot of our listeners are not in politics. They're in offices or working half days from home dealing with conflict from a myriad of different perspectives. One that I think is particularly difficult for women to navigate is when it's personal, when it's just there's someone in the team who just doesn't like you. How do you navigate that? I find this is one of the toughest ones for anyone to manage in the workplace. Well, it is tough because those dynamics impact beyond even just the two of you. It impacts the entire team. It impacts the way people interact and the the mood and and uh, that whole sense of teamwork and culture is impacted by those sorts of negative interactions. And it's it's hard to understand sometimes because I'm sure most people walk around thinking, well, I'm quite likeable. Uh, try not to be offensive. I think most people try to go with the flow and play their part in teams and, uh, of course, have personality, but not to the point of being offensive to somebody else or insulting or, or undermining. But um, look, we do come across personality clashes from time to time and worse. You know, there are people that find it quite the sport to look to unsettle and and undermine you. So look, some of my tactics that I've developed over time, and believe me, not always successfully either, sometimes even I've decided to walk away. If you, if you just don't make progress, it can be so soul-destroying. Ultimately, you are the the leader of your own domain, the master, I think the word goes, the master of your own domain. And, and a very valid decision is, well, I'm just going to walk away because it's not worth it. But it can be very soul-destroying and frustrating. But for me, there are some really key things. Firstly, you can't ignore it. You have to actually address it. And as I said earlier, you know, for a lot of people, they just don't want to have those difficult conversations. So they'll let it exist and hope that it'll sort itself out. It rarely does. So actually acknowledging and organising to address the issue is important. I really believe that look for the common ground where you can. 
look for the things that you have in common or that you like in common or that you do in common or that you know in common. Look for some common ground. Identify pretty quickly, do you have common goals, but you're just going about it differently? And is that setting up this dynamic? And then I think, you know, the harder bits are really, are there things that they don't like about you in your values or your personality, your approach, et cetera? Are there things you don't like about the way they do those things? And again, they're often things that can be changed. I remember working in a big consulting firm when we moved into everybody hot desking in open space. Boy, did we all get to know each other's work habits very quickly. And what some people found intrusive, others found as adding energy and value. So we're all very individual And if it's simple things like that, they're easily moved through. They can grow into big things if you don't address them. But of course, I acknowledge, you know, there have been situations where people have deliberately tried to undermine me. And if I can't move through it myself, I always go to see if somebody else can step in to to mediate, either somebody that's more superior to us or somebody in the organisation that might be an HR set up to deal with those sorts of issues. And if I still can't resolve it, I make a big decision and uh, I'm empowered to make those decisions and it could be just to walk away. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point. One, if you're lucky enough in life to have opportunities and different choices, then you should use them and go and work somewhere where you're appreciated. What sort of leader are you, Sally Cap? How would you describe your leadership style? Well, it's a good question. I am, I'm a very high energy person. I'm so enthusiastic about everything. I probably annoy a lot of people, but I'm a very high on life. I call myself a glass all the way full kind of gal. I'm very collaborative. I'm a real team player. I love being in teams and working in teams and, and having inputs of lots of different people. I'm certainly somebody that appreciates that a diversity of thinking delivers better outcomes And so looking for that breadth and asking for lots of opinions is important. But when I was working at ANZ Bank for the CEO at the time as chief of staff, I remember him sitting me down at one point and I'd done this whole exercise where I must have consulted more than 100 people to get input into this strategy and plan. And he looked at me and he said, you know, the distinguishing thing about leaders is they have to make decisions. So he said, just make a decision. Don't come and show me all of the analysis that you've done because I'm assuming that in you, in your role. You actually have to make a decision. Now, he could see on my face how perplexed I was because there were so many options. What decision was it going to be? And I'm so grateful this happened to me early in my career because he said, make a decision and then the real skill is working out as quickly as possible whether it was the right decision or not and then make another decision, if not. Because he said that's what it's all about, a series of decisions spaced out at different times based on what you're seeing and assessing. And it was liberating for me because to know that, and we do this in life all day, every day, make a decision. If you work out that it's the wrong decision, just make another decision. You know, it's pivot theory. I call it pirouetting. It's, it's got lots of books written about it, but it actually comes down to that. Don't get paralysed in the assessment and the analysis. We've got to do that because it mitigates risks. But at the end of the day, you've got to make decisions. So for me, that was a great learning and I'm somebody that's become very comfortable with making decisions. 
The other element of me, and I know if any of my team members are listening to this, they will smile, is that I'm really somebody that I, I'm not really into the status quo. I like things to be different. I, I'm very comfortable with change. I'm conscious that not everybody is, but I really follow this whole, I guess, ethos of really challenging to improve. And that means asking lots of questions and not assuming that everything is right and really challenging to see if we can do better And for me, you can only do challenge to improve if you've established very respectful, trusting relationships within your team and the organisation, a culture of trust, so that when you ask questions that are challenging, they're received in the right way. They're received as, okay, you care about this and you want it to be as good as it can be, and that's why you're asking those questions. And when I first came into town hall, we didn't have a culture of that trust and respect where you could raise concerns, you could frankly give feedback that might be critical, you could say that if something made you felt uncomfortable or you thought it was wrong, that culture was not there, which meant that lots of things escalated and happened that were unacceptable. And so I shortcut all of that into the term challenge to improve, but it only works in an environment where you've built trust and respect. And I expect people to challenge me. And I think that's important. I want them to question what I'm doing or thinking or saying. And luckily, I've got an email feed every morning and a social media that is constantly asking me questions about what I'm doing. So a lovely reality check. That is the upside of social media. For women trying to move up the corporate ladder into leadership positions, generally, what's the one piece of advice you give them? The thing that's been really important for me, and I've actually got three career rules and I I still use them every day. The first thing is that we're often encouraged to take risks. And I think when we talked earlier about being the first, sometimes when you're being considered for roles, and particularly if the first or even if you're the fifth, there are elements of risk perceived around you. So as people encourage you to take risks, my first rule is actually to do a lot of preparation in mitigating myself as a risk. How have I pre-thought through all of those fears and concerns and what have I done to overcome them, whether that's my answers in interviews or getting my network to support me or to you know offer to do further development. But being very aware, I think it's that self-awareness of how you present as a risk and then doing what you can to mitigate those risks. So that's my first one because I love taking risks. So I've had a lot of practice at this. My second one is to tell people what you want. And I learned this early on as a young lawyer. I was the only female article clerk in, in my year. And I saw a lot of my male colleagues getting opportunities that I wasn't, but I didn't ever say anything. And when it came to my fourth, I think, performance review and they said, just keep doing what you're doing. Well, I did what every young, articulate, well-educated, confident woman does. I burst into tears and I was a blubbering mess. And I saw in that moment the shock on my boss's face. And I realised that he didn't know what I wanted to do. He was as shocked as I was and disappointed. So once I'd collected myself, he said, we just thought you were so happy doing what you were doing in mortgages So we were encouraging you to keep doing that. But if you want other opportunities, terrific. 
And before I knew it, I was on a plane to Hong Kong working on a takeover deal. It was fantastic. But it really taught me nobody is a mind reader and I am completely responsible for my own success and happiness. And therefore, I have to find a way of telling people what I want. And it's not easy in a lot of circumstances. So try different styles and be very authentic to who you are. But telling people what you want is important. And then my last thing is build a network of supporters, not just a network. I see lots of people, and I used to do this as well, you know, I'd end up with more business cards than anybody or more contacts. And I would be very focused on how many people I'd met or knew but really it's the quality of the relationships. In your network, it's about mutuality. There needs to be a relationship that where there's mutual benefit, those take time to evolve and you have to invest in those relationships, but they are the network of supporters that you can call on that will say things about you and support you when you're not there in those conversations that you're not part of or when you really need some help that they're willing to stick their neck out and actually get involved. And those three things have been very, very kind to me. So for women looking at that corporate ladder, please consider yourself as a risk already. Let's just accept it in so many circumstances and see how you can mitigate yourself as a risk. Please make sure you're telling people that you want to keep climbing that ladder and understand their perspectives on how you can do it, but you're just signalling that you want to do it. That's so important, telling people what you want. And make sure you're really investing in those networks so that they're there to support you along the way. Who are they? You should know them. And if you don't, that's a really good task to focus on. My final question is, as someone who's not living in Melbourne and all the listeners that are not living in the city of Melbourne, what can we do? What do you want to ask of us? How can we make sure that Melbourne is the centre of the universe? Yeah, thank you. Well, as the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, of course, I believe Melbourne is the centre of the universe and we've set ourselves up for so many incredible experiences. And I get excited talking about the city as a city of possibility, a place where people can really flourish and and seek to fulfil their full potential and draw a lot of happiness and success out of life. And the biggest thing towards being a city of possibility is that people participate. We need people to come in and actually experience Melbourne. That is our differentiator, I think, by participating in events or festivals or coming into debates and discussions, whether it's in the local pub or it's at town hall, by participating in our university sector or coming along to, we actually call them Participate Melbourne sessions, where we're talking about big issues and how we can solve them. The big thing about Melbourne is that sharing of experiences and participating. And some of those are very exclusive. They might be down a laneway and through a door that you didn't even know was there and down some stairs and others of them will be mega. Moomba is coming up in March, 1.4 million people over a long weekend. And uh, it's just that experience that I actually often do if I need a bit of an energy uplift. I walk out onto... Collins Street after a matinee theatre performance at the Regent and I literally hold my arms out and let all the people and their excitement and energy and delight fill me up again and I walk back into Town Hall. Uh, But there really is something about Melbourne and that sense of turning up, participating and being part of something special. Sally Camp, 
Thank you so much for turning up and participating um, <laughs> and uh, being, something, being part of something special today. It's been a, a privilege to talk to you and to hear your insights. And, um, you know, I look forward to watching the great work that you do and will continue to do in, in Melbourne. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thanks for letting me part of your wonderful community for this session. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 